This is Swampside Chats, the podcast where communists shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. This time, we welcome back Shane and Kyle from General Intellect Unit to read a saucy first edition of a foundational cybernetics text, The Human Use of Human Beings by Norbert Wiener from 1950. in the studio. The Swamp is with the unit and the unit is with the Swamp. To talk about a book, um, Norbert Wiener's The Human Use of Human Beings, specifically the first edition from 1950. Um, because uh, the second edition was quite heavily revised after the FBI basically came around his house and told him to shot his trap or they would kill him um knock knock yeah so the it's 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 quite a bit less radical that's not an exaggeration by yeah. the way <laughs> it might sound like one but no that's that's actually what happened so they literally th- like openly threatened to kill him it wasn't just like a strong arm kind of conversation it, it, it scared him enough that he had to rewrite the book but who, kn- who knows what kind of nudge okay i mean i guess any visit from the fbi is probably going to freak you out a little bit yeah it's not a great thing to happen um but so the second edition onwards is i think actually a stronger book this the, this first edition is kind of not particularly well written but it's much the first edition is more radical and so that's kind of why we're reading it um okay let's let's do some first impressions um jake what, what do you think of this well, I mean, having read it, um, I, I guess there must have been some, like some serious Cold War hysteria or something causing them to go and like visit him for something like this, which is, I think, pretty mild. All things like I was expecting to find, I don't know, like the blueprints to the saucer they found outside Area 51 or something, <laughs> you know, like like some real juice. Instead, I just found kind of a liberal pessimistic um Stuff peppered in with you know some really interesting things on I got early cybernetics and there's some stuff that seems to point towards like machine learning um, and and some musings on you know the problems of uh, actually existing socialism. The book was a little all over the place. I probably didn't pull as much out of it as you all did, but I probably don't have the same uh, kind of STEM background or you know computer based background. Um, but it was it was an easy it was an easy enough thing to read. Um, yeah, I give it a C plus. Yeah, I think yeah, that's pr- probably where it is. It's a, uh, it's 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 patchy. Let's say that um, the bits that are interesting are very interesting, but it is quite patchy. Um, Esri, what, what's your take? Yeah, let's see. Um, I'm doing a big bit of what's called the hermeneutics of suspicion here, and saying that a lot of this anti-fascism stuff that the book is loaded with, and well is a sign of crypto, small c, communist kind of longing in the soul. And I say in the soul because clearly, um, you know, what you actually see written, you know, yeah, we're wondering why would the FBI care about this so much considering how far out of his way he goes to call the Soviet state like, uh, you know, totalitarian religion, essentially. (laughs) Um, But like... There's quite a bit of radical thought here. There's a critique of the uh, ideology of progress that actually exempts communists, which is not 
a usual. It's not, it's not the usual critique of modernity and progress, um, which I think maybe un he unfairly maybe uh, exempts the existing communists. But that's always an asterisk to me of, hmm, why are you walling off something other than the nominal usage of this word? What, what are you hiding? Because <laughs> I, I think I know what you got, because I got it too. Um, you know, clearly, cybernetics as a whole has a sort of uh, para-dialectical character. This explicitly, even though he takes a shot at Marx's... Uh, read of Hegel's logic as being, you know, the St. Thomas Aquinas uh, flipping uh, Aristotle's logic and, and comparing its role in, like, uh, Jesuit theology as part of the totalitarian uh, uh, aspect, right? Like, I just feel like this is a guy that has powerful socialist longings in... 1950s America, you know, the House of Un-American Activities Committee is around knocking on doors. It's not just like something cool you can do as an Instagram model to be a communist at this time. So, um, I perhaps wrongly read that into a lot of what he's saying here, but I'm okay with being wrong if if that, that's what it is, because it's front-loaded with critiques of uh, imperialism and, I mean, civilization. There's a, there's a critique of civilization and a defense of so-called primitive peoples that I don't normally see. And it, it could be that there's like a missing link for me between, you know, something that, uh, an influential text that I haven't read that are links in the chain here. But... I have a feeling that some of the primitivists, like, you know, Ted Kaczynski, probably had read this book in Berkeley in the 1960s or whatever, and that it had a stamp on, on his thought. Although, again, taking that in a reactionary direction instead of this interesting, critical, humanist direction. So I was, yeah, I mean, I, I share the opinion that it's not like a very well-written book. But there's about, there's about a hundred pages of this, like, that are politically, like, so far seeing for that time period in America, um, or may, maybe even anywhere. Um, and, and also, I don't think I've read an earlier description of machine learning. There is a sort of treatise on the implications of game theory that, you know, prefigures the AI accelerationist god that, you know, god AI, the accelerationist god AI that um, keeps Elon Musk up at night. Um, there's so much here. This is a very impressive book. I can see why maybe it's not read as much as it should be, but um, if there's some way we can splice the radical shit back into one of the better... <laughs> formed copies of this book, like, you know, sort of do a, a George Lucas special edition, um, where you, you, you stitch together, like, some, some of the cool early cut-deleted cut scenes with the newest uh, CGI, I, I think this would be, like, well worth reading, because it, it presents a vision that is absent from, 
you know, actually existing communism, even actually existing, like, cybernetic crypto-Stalinist shit, like, it's really missing um, this strange, non-vitalist beating heart that Wiener brings to the subject matter. Um, it's been a while since I read a book that, like, kind of hit me in the soul as much as this, even though I sp- speed read, like, a quarter of it. <laughs> yeah, I think I'm, I'm in a very similar place. Like it's, um, I'm on, on on board with a lot of that. Um, and then with the caveat, yeah, it, it's 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 a hundred good pages out of two hundred and something. So can't win them all. Uh, Kyle, what's your take? Uh, yeah, I am always interested in this generation of intellectuals. Uh, a lot of my doctoral work in Japan was studying about this generation of intellectuals uh, sort of coming out of the 30s, uh, the kind of communist tendencies or socialist tendencies that existed at that time. And then through the war, the involvement with the security state and uh, finally the chill of the Cold War, uh, which basically suppresses radical thought for, like, in, um, especially in sort of, like, STEM-related fields uh, for maybe about 20 to 30 years, possibly even longer than that. so I, I find this, this this generation always an interesting one to come back to uh, and see what they say. Uh, you know, I can see how many of these kinds of pessimistic uh, treaties were written at the time because uh, they were facing down really quite um, a situation that gave them cause for despair. Um, I guess the one that I would usually point to is like one dimensional man came out later, uh, but you know, similar background, right? Someone from the security state, uh, who basically gets fed up with the way things are going, uh, and, uh, writes a big sort of diagnosis of civilization and that kind of like civilization, it's discontent's mold, um, so my feelings about this specific text, um, I think it's not at all, uh, illegitimate to point to those sort of communist yearnings. Uh, you know, Wiener very explicitly defends the principles of Marxism, uh, even if he considers the methods and structures of the project to be, uh, broken and uh, fall into the Catholic pattern. Uh, I'm interested to talk about that section a little bit later, how much this falls into sort of anti-Catholicism as like standard American discourse. Uh, But I think some of the stuff he says has good points. I mean, you know, I think a lot of us have histories with Catholicism, so we can probably uh, (laughs) get into that a bit. Um, And, uh, you know, his, yeah, I think it's his general sort of civilizational diagnosis I find interesting, especially looking back 
you know, this is what he saw, what actually happened, you know, what what came of the situation he was diagnosing. That interests me quite a bit uh, to see, like, well, we'll get into it. I, I have some specific points I want to talk about a little bit more. Uh, but um, for the most part, the book is a lot of musings by someone who is quite an intellectual insider, an academic insider, uh, someone who comes from that sort of security state background, has had has been a part of sort of the tremendous technological developments of the Second World War, um, and is kind of like making a case for communication being a principle that is general to many areas of life. Uh, I think basically that is not a controversial statement anymore. Uh, a lot of the things he says in the book are really dated. Um, and I therefore found most of this book to not be very interesting at all. Um, I, I think it was a snooze for most of me, like I literally, literally, literally fell asleep reading it uh, quite a few times. Uh, but when I got to the last chapter, I was like, oh yeah, like this is actually really solid. This is like an interesting read. This is an interesting take. Um, and it's not that the stuff he's written was just like inherently bad. It's just, he wasn't a specialist in any of the areas he was writing about. And it's like, I don't want to read something <laughs> by a non-specialist about information in like sort of scientific fields that is like 60 years out of date. Like, that's quite dull to me. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Unless it is, like, a very specific intellectual project of, like, tracing an intellectual genealogy, which is not what we're really doing here. Um, so, uh, yeah, the front and back are really good. Um, he, he, he sort of lays out a lot of things that Beer would later take up uh, in, in, in interesting ways. Uh, and uh, that sort of civilizational diagnosis I appreciated quite a bit. Uh, but for the most part, uh, it was a lot of rough and not many gems in the middle. Yep, totally. Um, like, I mean, there's a big saggy middle here, which we're going to skim over. Um, we're going to focus on the first and last couple of chapters. Um, how did, but how did you feel, Shane? What are your general comments? I see. I I, re I read the second edition quite a while ago, and I liked it. Um, that's a fairly tight book, and it I think is a bit more sophisticated than this one. Uh, it's a bit of a shame that he had to rewrite it and strip out the radical stuff because that is obviously missing. So, for example, like chapter twelve is gone from all subsequent editions. Like the, the last chapter, it just doesn't reappear, and that's the one where he explicitly calls out the FBI. Um, so you wonder why that might have gone. Um, so that one had piqued my interest anyway. But then also in the first chapter, like a lot of the kind of radical stuff and the radical opposition to the sort of capitalist machine subjugation of hum humanity, all that stripped out. Um, so it becomes a more sort of, I think, balanced philosophical work, but at the expense of all of its, its sort of um, stuff. But I, I mean, I'm in general agreement here. I think I'm, I'm as enthusiastic as Esri about the, like what is hinted at behind the scenes. Because I think this, this guy seems to fit into a category of people like scientists and cyberneticians of the mid-century who were basically socialist-ish or whatever in their commitments, but they were scared shitless by the Soviet Union for like, they were, they were like actually like really repulsed by the, what was going down there and for good reason, uh, but also found themselves kind of ran out of town at home and kind of developed the good sense to keep their heads down. 
Um, and you know, but then you can you can sort of see what's bubbling behind the surface. I also agree with Kyle. Like a lot of this is just kind of fairly drab. Um, the middle chapters, especially, like Wiener did regard himself as a kind of um, a kind of boy wonder or whatever whatever the proper term for that is. He he was kind of a bit full of himself and was a bit too willing to get into fields that he kind of didn't really know what he was talking about. There are some predictions here that are very, very, very accurate. Like, he calls a lot of stuff, but then there's stuff that's just kind of waffle, and it's like, meh, shrug. Mm. Well, it's just, like, he... Like, he's not doing something that was overly unusual for the time. Like, the role of the scientist at the time was quite different from what it is now. Uh, and so, like, I don't find that stuff to be like, oh, he's just, like, unusually crank <laughs> or, like, sure. you know, he's self-aggrandizing here. It's yeah. just more like this is a thing people don't really do anymore. It's interesting to see it done, but I also see why it isn't done anymore um, in in a context where, like, our understanding of these fields is far deeper than it was at that point. Indeed. Uh, Jake, you had something? I was going to say, what what you were saying about him seeing himself as a boy wonder, you, you very much get that impression just from the way he writes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Apparently, I, I have a auto, not an autobiography, whatever, the one the one is a biography of his somewhere on a shelf. And I, I think it does sort of go over this kind of thing that like he was, in, even in school, he was like this a prodigy. That's the word I was looking for. Um, and he kind of, he was like, you know, up through the ranks and that kind of shit. And he, he seemed to have a pretty high opinion of himself. I mean, a fair, fair amount of it, well earned. And a fair amount of it, kind of not as well. Um, there's a very, there's a funny thing where um, his his first book, uh, Cybernetics, Control and Communication in the Animal and the Machine, comes out at about the same time as Claude Shannon's Information Theory, or the, the Mathematical Theory of Information. Um and there's a lot of parallels, but like where Shannon looked at that and was like, huh, that's interesting. And, you know, I should talk to this Wiener guy. Wiener was kind of like actually said that like, oh, you know, it's a parallel discovery. And he, he kind of like tried to get some of the credit for like Shannon stuff or something. He was very like a kind of a prickly guy in some ways. <gasps> a bit, that's a bit so too funny. Full of himself. Not exactly the credit, but like, you know, he was like, oh, no, I, I, I like because everyone was falling over. Uh, Claude Shannon's yeah, work yeah. and he was like oh no I totally did the same thing and he's like, he kind of did but like don't say it you know what I mean like, yeah um, that's uh, he should understand by his own musings on intellectual property mm-hmm. how uh, <laughs> yeah, sure. how you know he's, he's the meme of the guy in third place spraying champagne all over himself mm. <laughs> <laughs> that's gonna be the cover after this episode um, uh, but again like not what what he was doing there not uncommon for this time at all among these people like it's you know these were these were luminaries and uh they all wanted to stay in the spotlight and you know sometimes it even came down to like national things right like with the whole invention of linear programming was it a soviet thing was it an american thing like yeah he's just kind of one of those at the top of the academic game in the kind of public eye and participating in that sort of vanity contest. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, but, uh, echoing in my head whenever Wiener was mentioning specialization and that sort of thing was um, Bordiga's critique of science as a sort of nominal body and how as things got more complicated and scientists became more specialists, 
it was deprived of its revolutionary, unified field, Catholic theology, like immortal science character, and therefore it could only be reactionary. This led Bordiga to uh, slogans as down with science and science and religion are buried in the same grave. It's probably where a lot of the uh, primitivists, uh, you know, kind of get their swag from, um, at least in the case of some of the important ones. Um, but like, you can see here that this guy is writing on the fringes of when, like, you could reasonably, you know, write a big book of everything and explain every topic to everybody. Um, because, yeah, I, like, we'll get into some of his weird Orientalist stuff on linguistics and, uh, you know, his anthropocentric view of language and, you know, a bunch of the things that even if he was had, like, a better survey of the material at the time, he wouldn't have said. Mm-hmm. Indeed. Um, yeah. Uh, well, I mean, that, that sort of middle, those middle chapters on linguistics are not great. We'll, 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 we'll skip over some of those, but we'll, we'll mention those bits, right, because they're, they're definitely worth calling out. Um, so I guess we can get started on the text. So chapter one is called What is Cybernetics? Um, notably, this one is kind of rewritten pretty extensively in the second edition. It, it kind of disappears into two or three chapters. Um, but he's setting up the problem, right? So he's been studying control engineering and communication processes, and he's found that these processes reveal something of the nature of human behavior because there's something eerily familiar about the way that these cybernetic machines work. And so we're, we're talking about like machines that use feedback to adjust their own performance. So a, the classic example for Wiener is a fire control mechanism for like an automated gun turret that the, it, it, the, the machine is somewhat self-guiding. It uses its own performance to adjust its own performance in this kind of strange feedback loop. It's, specifically, this is a thing Wiener invented during the war. It was his, like, wartime job oh. to, do, to make this. Oh, okay. Well, that, that explains why that's his go-to example. I was like, eh, all right. All right, Wonder Boy. Yeah, but then later we get the same sort of examples coming up, but, like, in different contexts. So, like, for, for Ashby, it's all about the thermostat, like, the, the homeostat, right? Like, where the device uses its own, a reading of its own kind of intention versus its, actu its actual performance to adjust its, its own strategies and regulate something, right? So it's the regulation of behavior via communication about oneself and about the world around you. These kinds of systems that are embedded in a world and they adapt to it by observing things and communicating, communicating both internally and externally and stuff like that. And this is strange because it, it highlights there's something kind of mechanical about human behavior or that like humans as intelligent beings are the sort of apex of this general dynamic that we see in trace amounts in the gun control device and in the, in the thermostat. This then suggests the possibility of replacing human behavior with machines, not just human muscle power replaced with steam engines, but human adaptivity being replaced with cybernetic circuits or even machine learning, right? Um, then on, on page two, he really gets down to it. And this, this is also stripped out of the, this, the subsequent editions, right? Um, so I'll read it. The purpose of this book is both to explain the potentialities of the machine in fields which up to now have been taken to be purely human, and to warn against the dangers of a purely selfish exploitation of these possibilities in a world in which to human beings, human things are all important. That we shall have to change many details of our mode of life in the face of the new machines is certain, but these machines are secondary in all matters of value that concern us to the proper evaluation of human beings for their own sake and to their employment as human beings, 
and not as second-rate surrogates for possible machines of the future. The message of this book, as well as its title, is the human use of human beings. This was interesting to me because like, in the, in the subsequent editions, all the, this shit is gone, right? And he never actually mentions what the title is supposed to be about after that. And I always talk the, the title, the human use of human beings, to be a reference to like human domination of other human beings. But he's actually contrasting it because he, he's a bit of a sort of like lib rather than a kind of out and out communist, right? He's not, he's not going that far. But he's contrasting the human and humane use of human capabilities versus the machinic use of human beings where humans are treated as cogs rather than intelligent beings in their own right, and they are subjected to a kind of machine intelligence um, of the market, like the, the, the sort of despotic market consciousness subjugates um, human, human activity to its own will. This, this resonates quite a bit with the early chapters of Marx's Capital. Like, I mean, I, I happen to also be reading, mm-hmm. uh, doing a close reading of Capital right now. But um, yeah, like pretty, pretty, pretty close parallels here. <laughs> Yeah, there are whole there's uh, small sections of this book that do touch on the development of the industrial labor process. I would imagine he was working from capital to some degree, like lib or not. Like this is a strain of liberal humanism that is very amenable to you know the communist horizon. Like, um, I mean, when we were talking about you know we were talking about like the limits of scientific discovery. There's a section towards the end of the book where he more or less defends like the sort of Hegelian Fichtean sort of logic of, of discovery, <laughs> like in, in the Marxist mode, he defends, you know, dialectics in a sense, like as, you know, intellectual freedom doesn't always weave everything together. But when you have real mastery of a topic, you can synthesize all of these seemingly disparate parts. Um, and cybernetics as a whole, but also, you know, explicitly in the language here, is taking, you know, the, you know, what could be called the law of uh, quantity into quality, you know, like as its first principle. And really, if you really take science seriously, it's pretty much the only dialectical law that you really need to consider. <laughs> um, like this, that, that, and, you know, an acceptance of that is all over this. It's part of the cybernetic tradition already, but like this guy read angles, you know, he did mm. like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. Right. Um, there's something else that jumps out at me here in this, in this whole chapter. Cause like there's, there's quite a few bits he goes through like information theory and like machine engineering sort of stuff. But there's, there's a kind of interesting inhuman humanism at work here because he's, it's, it's a humanism. He's, he's like, he wants to point us towards like evaluating human beings as valuable, like dynamic, lively creatures in their own right. But he gets there by um, a sort of machinic ontology where this, this thing we call agency is a structural thing that just exists in matter. If matter is configured in certain configurations, it will exhibit agency. And that these feedback circuits are what, what gives this kind of thing, right? Like that you can see agency in trace amounts in the, the, the thermostat and in the, the fire control device. And when you get to like organisms proper and like intelligent social organisms, you're looking at the same dynamic but amplified fucking crazy amounts. Um, so it's he's he, he's sort of saying like we we shouldn't we shouldn't treat human beings as if they were machines but human beings are extremely advanced machines also um but this is the general bias of, of cybernetics as well to like value local intelligence that like matter and like organism is intelligent and organisms are composed out of stacked intelligences that 
combine to give more and more emergent intelligence, and that to mistreat a human being as if it were simply a cog would be just a, a vorpal kind of damage to to the, the 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 ontology, right? You'd be denying all that all that agency all the way down. Well, I mean, I guess like it's part of the reason some of that happens is because you're basically dealing with managing complex systems. And so the more variables you have, the, har- the more complex the system is and the harder it is to manage. So the, yeah, the humanist impulse behind cybernetics, it seems like, is to develop a way in which you can collectively manage these complex systems that doesn't just 100% completely instrumentalize people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the whole, the whole question of human use of human beings does put into question, like, which humans are the subject and which humans are the object there? Like, is it all of us using all of us? <laughs> or is it, you know, a class? I think that's what he's getting at. Like, that, that's, that's what he wants to get at, I think. But he doesn't quite get there because I don't think he quite has that class analysis right proper because it still does right, remind yeah. you of that. Like, well, which humans? But I think what he's getting at is something mm-hmm, like the culture mm-hmm. where it's like there's, a, there's a, a general human system that instrumentalizes all of its components to all of their benefit. Um, or whatever. Well, okay, so like he essentially posits three types of domination in this book, right? There is capitalist domination, which is the the domination of what he calls the fifth freedom of of the businessman, right? Uh, is the freedom to exploit. Uh, there is the domination of the totalitarian organization. Uh, so whether that is for him fascist, Catholic, or uh, Marxist, uh, or, or, you know, communist. Uh, And then finally, there is the perspective domination by the fascist machine uh, that would, you know, be basically uh, whatever it is, um, Skynet, uh, what we come to know as Skynet. Uh, So those are the three types of sort of like non-human uses of human beings, uh, and he, he defends the principle of equality or like, what is it? He says like the, the three basic principles that we need to pay attention to are liberty, fraternity and equality. And he says the principle of equality is like interesting and useful enough, important enough uh, that I think it's fair to say when he says the human use of human beings, it's, it's, it's very much a mutual use of each other in, uh, in, in, in an egalitarian way. I did want to say uh, one other thing about um, sort of the human use of human beings, which is I believe this text is prior to Ashby's Law. Yes. Uh, Not by much. But he does. But it's there. He does very much make an argument um, that is that resembles one based on Ashby's Law, uh, which is essentially that human beings you know, as these kind of like high variety machines have a certain amount of play and capacity to them, which inhuman uses of human beings basically try to attenuate, right? Like they they just try to attenuate the variety of people down to uh, a common sort of ready-made unit, Um and so you can definitely see like a prefiguring of uh, like Beer's uh, thinking about uh, human freedom uh, in this text. 
Uh, and I, I thought that was that was cool to see, like, yeah, this isn't exactly justified by Ashby, but it very much is writing in the same vein. It's remarkable how much of that is is present so early, right? Because this is the second text ever about cybernetics. Wow. Because the first is the first is his first book, uh, Control and Communication in the Animal and the Machine, and the second book, The Human Use of Human Beings, is a one. It, it's it's a rewrite that's stripped of all the math to be to be more like a popular read. This is the second ever book about this shit. In parallel, Ashby and Beer and all these other fucking freaks are reading this stuff and are coming up with their own theories. But um, it's remarkable how much of that is present here very early. This is absolutely remarkable. But yeah, because the whole point of his discussion of variety is that the, the, desire, to atten- the desire to attenuate variety is fascist, essentially. It's fascist Ant-Man. Like, you're trying to turn humanity into a hive, right? Like, and he makes a not-so-subtle overture that, like, the way that, um, you know... The way that capitalist enterprises are headed with a, you know, an executive surrounded by yes men, or the way that a bureaucracy, his go-to example is a laboratory, is headed, implies that these people don't actually really love democracy. These people want to attenuate variety as much as possible. Very much implied that capitalism in its, you know, market form and its bureaucratic form has these imminent fascist tendencies to eliminate variety, to shoot the cat in your in your Berian, uh terminology. Absolutely. And I guess maybe especially for the listeners who are maybe not totally familiar with the cybernetics material, it's worth clarifying that when we say machine and when uh, Norbert Wiener says machine, he doesn't just mean lumps of iron and uh, and circuits of silicon and copper. A machine is a structure that has that exhibits a behavior and exhibits a consistent behavior. So machines can be made out of meat. They can be made out of units of meat. They, they're social machines, social systems are social machines, and they can also be made out of iron. Uh, but the, the iron machines are a kind of special case of machinic d- dynamics in general. Um, so that's, that's maybe worth bearing in mind. Uh, and I think this is something that'll come up later in the text, but I think that Wiener hasn't really thought this through as much as he should have. There's a kind of, uh, I guess, like enlightenment humanism that is residual in this text, uh, which isn't really consistent with the cybernetic principles that he's advocating. Um, so, I, you know, if we want to make that like sort of pickering distinction, I, I would say this is this is somewhere in between the modern and non-modern ontology. Right. Like, it, it, you know, there is a kind of anthropocentrism to this text, which um, is kind of at odds with what you just described. Uh, it's very weird, isn't it? Because like he, he, he has that anthropocentrism with language, but then he also says that like language is not an exclusively human thing. Like it's, we communicate, machines can communicate amongst themselves, but he doesn't extend that to animals very much. No, it's Mm -hmm. machines that can also communicate like with language and like the behavioral patterns that, and, and phonetic patterns that exist in animals are not language. Mm -hmm. Um, So he, he doesn't drink his own Kool-Aid quite enough. Yeah. Like uh, the the part that's developed is anti-vitalism. You know what I mean? Like that there isn't this specific life force. Um, there isn't. It's that it's all. It's pa- basically patterns all the way down. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. I I appreciate somebody that can recognize that and also be like, 
on, but on some level, what I'm concerned with is humans, you know, like outside of, you know, maybe some, uh, ethical, you know, vegetarianism or something like, uh, I, it kind of weirds me out when people care more about cows or something than people in the third world. Um, so like, I, I don't really have that much of a problem with this, with this inconsistency. Is it inconsistent? Yeah, like, he hasn't laid down the framework to justify it. But this is, like, it's an inconsistency that comes out of, like, his many virtues. <laughs> that he still primarily cared about human life. Mm-hmm. I think it's it's a kind of halfway house on the, um, on the like, the, 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 the humiliation of, of humanity or whatever. That, like, it does turn out that we're not the only agents in the world, but we are still agents. That's, yeah, and... Both of those are yeah, fine to be true at the same time, right? And this conversation is carried out between a specific type of agent. Like, it's, you know, and it's a conversation between humans. It's like, that's what's always buzzing in the background. And it's, I like bringing that to the fore. I don't know to what degree, like, it's just a matter of him appealing to his audience. Uh, but I just, I detect, like... They're still in the in in the prose of this text. There's a certain degree of arrogance about what humans are and their relation to the world, uh, which, again, I, I he may just be kind of like pulling his punches to make this palatable to the reader because, you know, this is pretty radical stuff. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it just feels it, again, it, it feels like it's somewhere in between that that modern and non-modern ontology. Uh, just my gut feeling. I kind of, I actually buy at face value his centering of human subjects. Um, I, I think that's like a commitment more than it is a, an oversight, you know, like, cause yeah, in most cybernetics, they have a more sort of developed anti-vitalist ontology that, you know, sees meat machines as a, a machine among any other. I, I appreciate his, centering of us in the driver's seat like even if you know ultimately systematically we're not in the driver's seat as he'll get to towards the end of the book like that's the situation he wants to avoid you know that's it's not something he's unaware of mm -hmm. indeed um okay so chapter two then is contains like in it's it's in kind of two halves right like we've this um, is that the, the, the title is called Progress and Entropy, and he's going to talk about historical notions of, uh, notions of progress and this like thermodynamic entropy thing. Um, and the entropy part is fairly easy, right? That like uh, in thermodynamics, entropy tends to increase, which is basically to say that like systems go from less likely states to more likely states. So a vase sitting on top of a, a, sh a shelf is an unlikely state of affairs. It's pretty rare and it's hard to get there. A vase that's smashed into dust is much more likely in the long run. So over time, left to its own devices, the vase will tend to turn to dust or accident will just make it turn to dust. Similarly, if you have like two blocks of iron and one of them's really hot and one of them's really cold, over time, the heat will pass from one to the other and it'll balance out. So and entropy, and this brings us to like in the very end, the kind of heat death of the universe where everything is just the same temperature and is there's no dynamism left anymore. 
Um, this is a very doomy kind of um, notion of time and, and, and history, right? The things, order is generally decreasing and things are going on. But then Wiener does point out that this, this law of thermodynamics only really applies for closed systems, such as the entire universe as a whole, as a single, single system. But for open systems like the Earth, which receive new energy and information constantly from the sun, this doesn't need to be the case because there's available energy to build order out of. Um, you, can, you can have these islands of order in the general wash of disorder. Um, and he kind of says, well, you know, maybe we accept that, that's fine. We, we, we know that the, that the world will not persist forever, but it will persist long enough, long enough for us to be happy. Um, and then he goes into a different sort of thing. He, he can contrast that intellectual pessimism um, of, the, of, the, of the physicist to the kind of emotional euphoria of the American subject, uh, which gets really kind of fascinating. So, so Kyle, what's, what's this whole segment about? Yeah, um, he's kind of talking about like that sunny optimism, uh, the idea of progress forever, the idea of basically like the, you know, America as God's chosen land uh, that will just kind of prosper forever, uh, which is sort of backed up by, you know, in fact, like he doesn't get into this, but in fact it is backed up by a huge history of colonialism, uh, certain resource <laughs> arrangements, uh, all kinds of things. But like he's he's saying that for the average American at this time, the worldview is one in which America is at the center and progress is forever. Right. Um, now he says that, uh, there are actually two aspects to the idea of progress. Um, there is a factual progress, uh, which is, uh, essentially like the kind of acceleration that beer talks about, which we have to cope with, right. Which is, is the acceleration of invent invention, uh, particularly the one driven by capital under capitalism, right? Uh, uh, and then we have the ethical idea of progress, uh, which is to create a just world, right? Uh, to move move towards a, a more and more perfect world. Um, now, uh, these don't necessarily coincide with each other, uh, but for your average American at this time, uh, the ideas are considered to be one and the same, right? Uh, that uh, the, the, the growth of the industrial powers and ingenuity of America is also the growth of ethical order in the world. Um, now, he says that uh, this is kind of co-emergent with capitalism and colonial conquest. It's quite a narrow phenomenon. Uh, and... Uh, he says also that this view is one that really is quite radically different from prior religious views of the world, sort of like prior eschatologies or other eschatologies. Uh, so he says, you know, like, for example, for the Christians, there is the separation of heaven from earth, right? Like prior to the modern era, uh, it, it was kind of inconceivable, this idea of like heaven on earth is like, no, you go to the you go to the next world and that's, that's where heaven is. It's, it's not this miserable shit we're dealing with here. Um, uh, and he also talks a little bit about, uh, 
the communist struggle to transform the earth into a more perfect world, uh, which he just, he distinguishes from the, uh, bourgeois idea of sort of like, um, ingenuity, growing capital, growing ingenuity, growing in this very like, uh, I guess what you would call social Darwinist way, uh, towards uh, a more perfect world. Like it's an automatic process that is afforded by liberty and ingenuity. Um, it's not a actual struggle beyond numbers go up. Uh, so I guess like there's still people, you know, these days who kind of make that liberal argument, right? Like what's that guy the yeah, Steven Pinker is like the, a model of the, the, the kind of uh, bourgeois thinking that Wiener is criticizing here. And he says that the, the, the communist recognition that political struggle is important and actually determines the kind of progress, the, 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 the kind of match between the factual and the ethical that we arrive at, uh, distinguishes it from what is internalized for the most part in America from bourgeois ideology. Um, there's a very, there's a very like interesting thing there that I, I it's, there's a connection that I don't think Wiener explicitly draws, right? But, but between the two halves of the essay, that the, the entropy and this like struggle for, um, for, for, for greater things, right? That like, cause the thing with entropy is that like, it's, when entropy increases, like in that way, like the two, the two blocks transferring heat to each other, that's what is called spontaneous action in a system. That, that's the action that you expect to happen naturally without anything else interfering. So naturally things cool down, right? Or nat like spontaneously water will run downhill to a more likely place for it to be. The opposite of spontaneous action is work, where the system does something that's unlikely. And so like... Information and entropy are both related to this concept of like surprise and likelihood and like statistical likelihood of things. Um, and so the thing with the, the, the lib notion of progress is kind of like this thing of like, well, spontaneously things just get better. And it's like, no, they kind of don't. Like thermodynamically, that doesn't happen spontaneously. For, for order to be restored or for, for structure to be created requires work which requires a semi-closed system, like a, a system that's open enough to receive new energy and put it to work um, to create things. Because if that's not happening, if you're dealing with a closed system that's just doing its own thing naturally, that system is going to wind down towards heat death. Um, and so, but the, com the, the, the difference with the communist vision of progress is that it is active. It is an active process of work to create social um, structure and cohesion that is, that is greater than what we have. And that if in the absence of that work, what you're going to get is generalized decay. Um, that's the spontaneous action you can actually expect is, is, is general decay, not the spontaneous creation of, of wonderful new things. Uh, but he never quite explicitly draws that, dis, that, that comparison. I think it's what he's trying to get at in general with the, the chapter, but he doesn't really get there. Yeah, because it's, it's, it's actually kind of, it's kind of hard to see like what, if you're familiar with Stalinism from the period, again, 1950, you know, mustache ain't dead yet. Like, communist notions of progress at this time are probably the only sort of, like, parallel you have to something like an automatic notion of progress. And I know it sounds kind of counterintuitive because, well, class struggle is the motor of history. 
But um, in in uh, Leninism, in Marxist Leninism in particular, like in a specific reading of, of Marxism, um, there is very much a notion of the forces of production, and in particular, the technical instruments of production, having a sense of almost automatic growth throughout history and class struggle taking on some kind of either epiphenomenal in its worst forms or in its more defensible forms, a sort of secondary causality within the growth of the productive forces. This is a big matter of consternation in the debates around analytical Marxism in the interpretation of historical materialism. Does it make sense to talk about this emergent sort of growth in the forces of production over time. Um, and certainly in Stalinism, it's at, this is at its highest point of abstraction from the class struggle as you know, progressive ideology. And I think it should be noted that, I mean, American progress ideology at one point did have its roots in struggle, right? And it's sort of gestured to when talking about the virile you know, rough rider kind of um, Western expansion kind of American progress ideology. But there's a certain point where seeing yourself as an imperialist and a, you know, uh, white supremacist colonizer exits the picture of American self-identity. It becomes obscured. But that is sort of, you know, the rugged individual engine of progress that's behind American notions of progress that gets eclipsed in the 1950s and that, you know, a lot of, um, a lot of conservative America is very upset about this, you know, that notion of the struggle disappearing. And, you know, people are getting too soft now. You know, you forgot our roots. You forgot where we came from. Like, uh, I, uh, yeah, I don't know. Like, I, again, like, I've had this very same conversation with a lot of, um, Foucauldian liberals about, oh, progress. How could you even use that word? Well, you know, because, I, because yeah, it, there, there is class struggle. There is, you know, struggle in history and it does, you know, produce something different and sometimes something better um, in, in a social system. Um, when you look at the Civil War, you can see both struggle and struggle leading to progress, but also, you know, the tendency for modes of production to try to reassert, you know, in, in the kind of Foucauldian mode, reassert similar types of, um, similar types of oppression in, in new forms. So like, I don't know, like, it's so amazing that he just sort of slips. Yeah. Communists, you know, they're kind of more like these other religious types that don't believe in automatic progress. This is at the height of when that is least true, but you know, he's still sort of right. Like, there's a notion of progress that communists have that is defensible. You can get progress if you fight for it. Um, and that's something that had disappeared from America uh, because of how awful the fight they were positing was. It's essentially a sort of race war that keeps you pure and, you know, makes, you know, toughens your hands. Yeah. He also, like, I think it's more towards the back of the chapter, but he kind of brings it back around to the, like, capitalist, like, techno-escalation. That, like, this this progress has required and been on the back of con constant invention, but the system is now undermining the basis for invention. 
And so like the problems we're going to deal with soon, like such as environmental collapse, are going to require more invention. And he seems worried that the system is putting itself on a bad footing to continue that kind of invention, like if it's undermining its own basis for, for, for sustenance. Yeah, there, there's a bit of the... Uh, I mean, again, this this reminded me of that flying cars and falling rate of profit essay. It's it's There's a bit of that sort of like... Co- uh, Marxist or communist argument for like why bourgeois science cannot actually realize the objectives of science or the de- further development of science uh, because it, it, it is restricted by private property essentially. Um, uh, just, yeah, so it's it, it's that it's that argument and. Um, I mean, it's been interesting to see how that dynamic has played out in response to uh, the COVID crisis, right? Um, mm-hmm. Is is Wiener one of the earlier left accelerationists, except for Marx, in that case? <laughs> uh, this was a really common argument mm. uh, by socialists at the time. Not the part, not the part about like this is a dangerous horizon for our future in terms of our reliance on invention, but the part about the limits of sort of bourgeois society and its relationship to science was a very common argument among socialists in the 20, early 20th century. Uh, it, it's, Wiener's just kind of taking it into this like new horizon. Well, I mean, I mean, it's, it's a common thing of where are people vested? And the ruling class is vested. The basis of its power is capitalism. And so they need to maintain that as long as they possibly can at any cost because that's the entire basis of their power and their wealth. Um, you know, you see similar dynamics, you know, maybe even like the re- arguably the reason that cybernetics wasn't adopted in the Soviet Union was because, you know, it would have made so many people within the bureaucracy obsolete and they knew it. So you implement the shittiest version of it. Um, and there, you know, eventually things reach a certain bottleneck where this is like Marx's point. The only way forward is to basically have a new social system or to, you know, to, cause the hard forces of production determinism that you see in Stalinism, you know, it over, it bends the stick and overemphasizes the material aspect of it in order to justify like these massive, industrialization drives so they can build up a war machine that can be on equal footing with the West. But there is some truth to it in that a a change, technological acceleration, if picked up and used for for the purposes of a particular class, does move history forward. But without that link up, it doesn't happen. Sort of like how people have pointed out that steam power existed in ancient Greece, but it was just used to change scenery in plays, right? It, w- it was never put to this <laughs> purpose that transformed the mode of production. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so I'm not sure where that was, but yeah, so you eventually, uh, the you can get like this technological progress, and the only way forward is to have it basically, we'll basically create a new system and we'll undermine the basis of the power of those who currently have it. Um, and that's why you see the death of maybe the kind of all-around, uh, you know, Renaissance man scientist. Not only, obviously, the increasing complexity of different fields requires specialization just 
you know, because of the time you put into it, you can only master so much because there's only so many hours in the day. But there is also they want people in their own lane, not thinking about these broader questions of what does society as a whole need in a holistic from a holistic standpoint, because the implications of that, if you're approaching it from an actual rational scientific way, would be very troublesome to the people currently in power. Yeah, um, there. Um, just to sort of elaborate on his, um, I don't know, incomplete processing of communism. Maybe this is more purposeful than I'm giving him credit for, because the way that he characterizes progress ideology is essentially through Lysenkoism and through like Lamarckian descriptions of ev- of an evolutionary mechanism, where actually it's kind of creepily close to a Marx quote that. Um, that you know, evolution in, works in such a way where you know there's no problem that you get served that can't be solved, um, and you positively adapt to the solutions available, right? And um, like in the case of environmentalism, this is still a sort of topic of consternation. A need exists, invention exists. Certainly, we can adapt our inventions towards that need. A sort of uh, Darwinian view of selection says, you know, that ain't necessarily so. Um, but the, you know, he really drives home that the American progress ideology has at its heart this Lamarckian a- adaptive kind of faith that because we have a problem, we will find the answer. So with with Lamarck, it's kind of like the... the um with Lamarck, the organism and the species are kind of actively propulsed forward, whereas for Darwin, it's, it's not that the living are pushed forward, it's more that the dead are pushed back. That, like, there's, there's yeah. a selection process which pushes, which pushes down certain uh, adaptations and simply allows others through, like, through a sieve. It's just by accident that they, 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 they go forward. So there, there's no active propulsion. It's just more like a kind of blind selection process. Um, I wonder, yeah, if, if the bourgeois ideology needs the kind of Lamarckian angle to just kind of believe that things will just improve without them actually needing to create the condition. Like, as in, you can solidify capital in place and, like, keep the commitment to private property, even if it restricts the actual development of, of, of society, but you still believe that, well, things will just go, go better anyway, even, even if you're actually the ones who are keeping the clamps down um, and preventing, preventing social progress. <laughs> well, the, the Lamarckian angle keeps away a kind of dark set of thoughts that Wiener knocks at the door at, but doesn't really... Uh, no, he, he does condemn a certain species of it, but he appeals to the Malthusian influence on Darwin and Wallace, Right, but he mainly speaks in glowing terms of Malthus, right? That um, you know that there are some people that want to use Malthus for this weird social Darwinist project, or you know, th- that want to use Darwinian theory for this weird social Darwinist project. And certainly, Lysenkoism has a corrupt political motivation, but then speaks in glowing terms of Malthus. If you actually kind of historicize Malthus and read, and, it's, and if you read Marx on Malthus, of course, you understand his uh, class position with, <laughs> and um, his appeal to, you know, essentially let the pores die off, being like the driving function of his work. Was, uh directly informed the ideol- ideology of the East India Company in committing genocide in India. Right. So the idea that, you know, we're going to critique these things and then think about, and this is where maybe like being a, being a, a lib humanist does hold him back, right? Instead of being some stripe of Marxist. Like, 
not being able to kind of take that critique to Malthus is another another undigested or underdigested the version of this like ideology critique that he's doing. Um, but you know, natural selection is real, and uh, there are virtuous forms of recognizing it, and then there's pernicious, uh, disgusting uses of it, and. He's good about naming that that kind of political offshoot from from people that should know better, but yeah, but um, but Malthus is strangely shielded from that critique. Just, just the idea of that Malthus is shielded from that critique, and then like American progress ideology is compared to Lysenko, but communists don't have the the Lamarckian sort of gene or something it's just there's a, those are a couple of very strange and idiosyncratic moves that's it for this one general intellect unit is just about to eclipse all swampside in patronage so why don't you help them seal the deal at patreon.com slash general intellect unit of course if you're still backing the Swampside horse, visit patreon.com slash swampsidechats and help stick it to our cybernetic comrades. Swampside Chats is part of the Emancipation Podcast Network and Research Collective. Check out our sister podcasts, From Alpha to Omega, General Intellect Unit, Jumpsuit Utopia, and Mortal Science at Emancipation.network. Speaking of Mortal Science, a little owl of Minerva told me that Mortal Science has launched a Patreon of its own. If you love backing the underdog, visit patreon.com slash mortal science and get in at the ground floor for that sweet, sweet communist ROI. Coming up, We'll continue this conversation with General Intellect Unit, and maybe pepper in a couple episodes on Adam Curtis and Jean Baudrillard for good measure. Stay tuned, and remember, keep your boots clean, your feet out of the swamp, especially with all that cop shit floating in the swamp, and your head in the revolutionary clouds of tomorrow. Tomorrow.